So this month, we are thinking through a passion for mission. Uh, I don't know if that describes what's going on in your heart. I don't know if that's your perspective. Is there a passion in you for God's mission out in the world? I mean, it it, it goes everywhere, especially into places uh, we've never been, places we've never thought about, places and involvement with people that may be invisible to us. Uh, I think on this Father's Day, it's appropriate that we're talking about an issue that is very unpleasant, that is very difficult and perhaps even confusing as you hear about it if you don't know much about it because it sounds like something that shouldn't be happening and if it is happening, it's only happening far away. It's not happening here. It's not happening in California. It's not happening in the Bay Area. It's not happening in this country. And if you think that, you would be wrong. Um, I suppose at one time I you know, entertained that delusion that such things don't happen here. And unfortunately, I have learned otherwise. So we're going to talk about that today. And we're going to talk about um, how God responds to that and how he expects us to respond to that and the opportunities we may have to actually intervene to make a difference. If you turn to the Psalms for a moment, you'll notice... um, not only in the Psalms, but, but throughout the, the Scripture, that God is, is, is a protector. Um, he is often in the, in the Psalms described as uh, refuge, as fortress, as our strength. Um, in Deuteronomy chapter, 20, uh, chapter 33, God is described as the eternal God, who is your refuge, and underneath are his eternal arms. Do you feel supported as you read that? We think of ourselves, we think of our own relationship with God, we think of how we count on him to take care of us and to to hold us up. And uh, sometimes it feels like we're in a free fall and we really need that security. And he operates like that, he promises that. In his sovereignty, it is a very, very personal relationship that he extends to every one of us. And then if you go to Psalm 68 for a moment, you read this. Sing to God, sing praise to his name. His name is the Lord, and rejoice before him. A father to the fatherless. A defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. He leads forth the prisoners with singing. And over to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Another passage about God and his fatherly relationship with us. As God has said, I will live with them, speaking of us, his people, and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. That's a very daring description of God, because we sometimes have a vision of God who is someone who is far away. He's a a concept. He's a force. He's an abstraction. But in this description and throughout Scripture, and especially in the words of Jesus, as he introduces God as Father, as Abba, and that's a a play on the the Hebrew name for Father, which is Av, and a little child would say Ava, would say Daddy. And that intimacy that God not only allows but invites 
He is more interested and more eager and more inviting of us to participate in a relationship with him than we are ready to jump in and completely trust him. But he invites that. He invites that. Thinking of God as father, of course, gets me thinking about myself as a father, a human father. And I have, we have three children. I guess I should share the, the credit here. Um, a son and two daughters. And I think have how protective I feel as a father. And that's just a tiny percentage of what would describe God in terms of his sense of protection and his fatherly concern. I remember when one of our daughters was uh, playing basketball. And she was a pretty darn good basketball player. You can find this hard to believe, but she's tall. Although she's the shortest of our kids. She's only 5'9", which we think is rather pathetic. And she was out there, you know, playing center, playing post, and she's always guarding bigger girls than her. But she was really tough. I mean, she was so tough, and I was so impressed. And after one game, she did really well. The team happened to lose. And afterwards, she was crying. Now, Diane never cries. This, this, is, this is our kid that never cries. This is our toughest kid. And she was crying. And I came over to her after the game, and I said, what, what's the matter? And she said, well, the, re- the, ref, the ref called me a name. I had been complaining about how this girl was pushing me, and the ref called me a name. He did it twice. I said, no way, refs don't do that. She said, yes, yes, he did. And I'm looking at her, and she's crying. Well, the game's over. You know, the time to yell at the ref, it, it's done. You can't, you, know, you, you, you can't go up to the ref after the game. The ref's standing in the middle of the court with the other ref, and there's a new game, a boys' game is about to come on. I, I, I get pretty passionate during games. And I, and I kind of, you know, allow my opinions to occasionally be verbalized. <clears throat> my wife's worse than me. Um, and she doesn't have equal time today. I'm so sorry. It is Father's Day. <laughs> so the game's over. But you know what? This is my daughter. And the game's never over when it comes to protecting your children. So I walk out into the middle of the court. Now, the people who know me, the other parents, they know that I can be, you know, rather verbal and rather assertive, a little bit aggressive. But they are amazed, they're stunned, and they're really worried about seeing me out there now talking to the ref face-to-face. And uh, the other ref I happen to know, I said, walk with me, because this is going to get a little intense. And so I walked to him, and I said, I understand that you said such and such to my daughter. I don't even want to say it out loud. But I said it to him. And he got real defensive. And he said, I didn't say that. I would never say that. And I said, well, my daughter heard you say that, and you should be concerned that she thought you said that. And I want to suggest you go over right now and make an apology to her for what she, either you said or she thought you said. I don't, I don't know the truth here. I'm not sure of what actually happened. And he said to me, I'm not going over there. I don't have to do that. Um, that's not my problem. Now, it got a little more intense at that moment. And we're about this far away from each other. And here's the other ref. I'm hoping he's going to intervene at some point. And so is everybody else who's watching this. Um, and nothing else actually happened because I wasn't going to go any further than that. But, but the one thing that needed to happen did happen. And that is my daughter saw me standing up for her. I think she was a little disappointed that it didn't. But I want my daughters, I want my son um, 
to know that I'm going to stand up for them. That's a father's call. Turn with me one more time to Psalm 82. I know some of you are disappointed it didn't go further than that, but I want you to just hear these words, and then I'm going to introduce you to someone who's going to help us dive into this issue that has become a huge problem. And we must be aware and we must respond because we hear these words in Psalm 82. And I'm going to start actually with verse 1, even though you're only going to see a couple of verses uh, from Psalm 82 on the screen. But in verse 1, God presides in the great assembly to give judgment among the gods, small g. Now, this is a strange passage, but he's talking to those who are in authority, who have godlike powers. And God holds those who are in authority, those who are in governance, those who have responsibility. He holds us, and I mean us, because we have responsibility too. We have God-like authority in some ways. We make decisions about people's lives and people's fate and their well-being. And he holds us responsible. We're, we're assembled, we're summoned before God. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? And of course, if he's addressing me, I want to say, what are you talking about? I don't, I don't know anything about anything wicked going on. And here's what God says. Defend the cause of the weak and the fatherless. Those who have no father to protect them. No human father. No human protection. Maintain the rights of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They know nothing. He's talking now about those who are victims. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaking, shaken. When those who are vulnerable, when children are oppressed and abused, when they're taken advantage of, when they're trafficked, they go into a very, very dark place. It's a very confusing place. Their foundations are not only shaken, their foundations disappear. And if you have experience, as our guest does, in relationship with such people, especially with the girls who have been abused. You begin to realize how this is so destructive. And so I want to join you, I, I want you to join me in, invite, in welcoming Kathy Wilson to come up front this morning. Would you? And she was a little nervous that I'd forgotten she was here and I was going to do my whole sermon without you. No, okay. My husband's a pastor. Oh, her husband's a pastor too, so she understands. They keep going, they just can't stop. So this is Kathy Wilson, and she is the deve- uh, Director of Development for New Day for Children, which is a uh, ministry that rescues, literally rescues and provides um, um, a safe place for these children. You're going to hear about that. And her husband is the pastor of First Covenant Church in Oakland, and she's graciously uh, agreed to come and, and uh, be with us today. So tell us, what is human trafficking? This might be a strange term for some of us. Yeah, so... Um this was a strange term for me um, just almost three years ago now when I started this job. I was aware of this type of thing happening overseas, but I had a pretty limited understanding. And come to find that, I'm, I'm sorry, because you're going to leave here, many of you, a little different than you came in, and you really may have a sense of disruption. And so I have to apologize ahead of time because this You're going to hear some statistics that if they're new to you like they were to me and to those of our church are really shattering and um, difficult to think about being in our own backyard. So human trafficking, um, we're really talking about the modern day 
slavery phenomenon. Any of you read the book Not For Sale or familiar with that movement that's been started in, at USF by a Christian professor there? Okay, um, how about IJM, International Justice Mission? Have you encountered that organization? Okay, these are some of the big overarching um, big picture groups. We're just small potatoes, we're new. They've been at this for a while, um, putting out for us the notion that slavery is alive and well. As we sit here in this comfortable room and go about, make free choices to go about the activities of our week and pursue our goals, things that we care about, there are 27 million people around the world today in bondage. And often when this is written about in articles, um, less and less, but, but still very frequently you'll come across um, in, in quotes the phrase, the people were found living in slave-like conditions. Why would we do that? Why would we use a phrase, they were in slave-like conditions? Anybody? What does that do to the concept of slavery? To say, well, the people, the people working in the gold mine, um, the people laboring in the, in the field were found in slave-like conditions. Okay. It softens it, right? It's saying, it's not really slavery, it's slave-like. It's like slavery. Why would we do that? Why would we refer to it in that way? It's because of our concept of slavery, isn't it? Slavery is something relegated to the history books. Slavery is something we learn about in school, we study, but it was in the past. And so um, the sad truth is slavery is very much alive and well on our earth today. 27 million is the official number. Of course, that's a, that's a symbolic number. We can't nail that down literally. Um, estimates vary depending on who's doing the counting and how they're counting, but there are more people in slavery today than in all the centuries of the African slave trade put together. Mm. And so as you leave here today, no matter what hats you wear, and many of us wear multiple hats, whether father, mother, our occupation, um, our role in family and culture, my hope is that every one of us would leave here today wearing the hat of modern-day abolitionist hmm. because nothing less is required. So what's happening right here in this country? Okay. What do we know? Okay, so human trafficking is part... Human trafficking denotes the movement and sale of persons. Um, globally, this is the second largest criminal industry worldwide just behind drugs, selling people, most of those sold are female. Um, a great percentage are children. Almost all of the children are sold into the sex industry. So most of those children are female and most of them are sold for sex. So unfortunately, right here in our own backyard, this isn't just Thailand, this isn't just Africa, right here, this is also the second largest criminal industry, selling our own kids for sex is the second largest criminal industry in the United States of America, coast to coast. So we're not just talking about classic prostitution, which has always been with us. It's called the world's oldest profession. Prostitution in America has always been here. It's, it's um, centered in the urban areas. This is not what we're talking about. So the trafficking in this country 
is more and more increasingly we're talking about minors and so the big change the numbers in the past handful of years the numbers have just skyrocketed to where the estimates in this country of children being trafficked for sex are 100 to 400,000 again depending on who's doing the counting if they're counting international traffic victims or just domestic so trafficking is the buying sale sale and movement of people most of whom that's happening to in this country are children. Um, we have been framing this issue here as prostitution. And so that is part of what has enabled it to grow to the extent that it has right under our noses. We're oblivious to these statistics. As if women are choosing to right, enter this. Right, yeah. exactly. There's not a lot of sympathy for prostitutes. Um, I go, I do like full, you know, you know, hour and a half presentations with lots of time for question and answers and things. And so people have been very honest, people in churches, and I'm glad they speak from their gut about um, their feelings about this issue. And questions will be asked like, well, aren't these girls just asking for it? You know, they're doing it for the money. They're kind of cheap girls. They would be doing it anyway. These are, these are attitudes that we have toward prostitutes. And this is how we have been framing the issue that these are bad girls, these are cheap girls. They, they're choosing, that the women are choosing. We don't know the back story. So the way this has changed here are the numbers, 100 to 400,000, never been anything like that in the United States of America. This has been, there is no over there anymore when it comes to this issue. The problem is worse in Asia. The three worst countries in the world today for um, selling of children for sex. Any guesses? All on the continent of Asia. Cambodia is now number one. As Thailand used to be number one, it's been bumped out of that spot by Cambodia. And the third, India. Okay, but no country is exempt. No city is exempt because the technology that we have today is not the friend of our children and it is just making this so possible and causing the issue to, to continue to explode. There is no putting the genie back in the bottle. Um, so our modern day technology is not the friend of our kids. So it's much, much worse over there in Cambodia, Thailand, and India, but it is here. It is global. There is no over there anymore. Children are trafficked out of this country as well as into this country. Our first child came into our program. February marks the second year that we have um, had children. Our first girl was a California girl who was kidnapped at age 10 and trafficked south of the border to Tijuana, Mexico. And so she was locked in a brothel in Tijuana for four years of her childhood someone tipped off the FBI. There was an American girl in that brothel. She lost four years of her childhood, age 10 to 14, did not go to school, did not play with other children, and was used thousands of times by men for sex in that four-year period. And I wish I could tell you that her story is uncommon. But this is, this is the very hard thing that I have to share with you today. And so sometimes we want to turn away from this. 
we want to sort of have the ostrich in the sand approach that if I don't know about it, it's not happening. Um, initially, when I first started doing this job two and a half years ago, my first task was just to get people to suspend their disbelief. People just simply did not believe me. Now, the media is making the case for us. So this is trafficking is a very hot button issue now, and you probably have seen a documentary or read an article, and if you haven't seen it, at least you've seen that it's on TV. So the media is really helping me now. I have on the, on the table the article I've been waiting for. Um, New York Times, Nicholas Kristof, so an internationally respected journalist, wrote a piece recently about a 12-year-old American child who was trafficked. So he told the story very well. So please get a copy of that article. Kathy, why is it larger now, and how is it happening? I mean, are we talking about children being abducted? What are we talking about? Now? Okay, so because this is global, we have to look to Cambodia. We have to look to Thailand to understand what's happening in our own backyard. A brothel in Cambodia can be filled with five-year-olds. Okay, it's endemic. It's not only wealthy Americans and Europeans traveling there, propping this all up, it's also local people keeping the system going. And a lot of corruption in these countries from law enforcement and politicians who are part and parcel of it. So we have to look over there because people in this country, we're all interconnected now. This is the big downside of globalization. Some wonderful aspects of globalization, the shrinking world metaphorically that we live in, but the big downside is the modern day um, slavery phenomenon, particularly the slavery of children, the most vulnerable of, among us. So people in the developed countries have looked at Thailand and Cambodia and seen this phenomenon of people traveling, of sex tourism, going to those as destinations to have sex with young children, and said, there's money to be made. This is business. This whole thing is motivated by two very, very primal human uh, emotions, needs, money, greed, the whole money factor, and lust, sex. And those, those are powerful, motivating forces. And so, people in the developed nations said there is a market here. And young cells, fresh-faced cells, pretty cells, innocent cells. So in this country, what prostitution has looked like forever in the inner city is pimps preying upon broken, vulnerable children. And this still happens, of course. Runaways, girls leaving and fleeing from abusive homes only to land, you know, jump from the frying pan into the fire. Um, and they have fished from the pond of older teens, whatever the age of consent is in that state. Most states in this country, the age of consent is still is 16, not 18. So whatever the age of consent is in that state, pimps have fished from that pond with runaways, girls who are on the margins, girls who don't have families looking out for them necessarily, male protectors, thinking of fathers. This has changed because of the business aspect, because of the amount of money to be made. People are literally becoming millionaires off the bodies of our children. If you go onto our website, we do have a video on there where the um, DA of Alameda County, Charmaine Bach, talks about the amount of money that is being made. It's business. And so that's, that's the thing. That was a spark. Again, because we're globally connected, because of what's happening in Asia, in Africa, and the sale of young children, people here said we want a share of that market. 
So for the first time in American history, just again in the past handful of years, this is the other very disturbing piece. The average age has always been, as I said, those older teens. The age has plummeted in the past handful of years to where the average age now in our own country of a girl being sold for sex, entering into this trafficking trade, is 11 to 13. So 12, right in the middle there, 11 to 13. That's the age of child I taught before I started doing this job, middle school. Middle school is now the target age and dropping. So our program here in this country with American girls needs to start with 10-year-olds. We have to. Our youngest currently, we got her when she was 11. She just turned, she just had her 12th birthday with us. She will be with us until she's 18. We keep the girls as long as they need to or desire to be with us. And she, her own mother, is the one who trafficked her right here in the Bay Area from the age of three. Sold her for sex. So we know that we'll have this child until she's 18. So it's, it's the money. <clears throat> it's the money. The other big contributing factor, and so we have, this is multifaceted. We have to do some really serious dialogue about our technology. Most kids nowadays are sold online. And the gasoline on the fire around the world is, of course, what? What's stoking the fire of this? How do we come to the place in our own country where the average age of child now being sold for sex to our own men and teens is 11 to 13? How can that be real? It is. What's the gasoline on the fire of that? Fanning that appetite in our males. Pornography. So we have to look at this from from many, many different dimensions and deal with it in many different ways and have honest talks with our teenagers, with our kids. The average age now for boys to begin viewing porn is eight. Eight years old. Our, our boys, our guys are being victimized themselves by porn. God designed men to be visual creatures. In the past, they used to have to go to special bookstores, and most guys didn't. Hardly anyone did. Now, it's right there on their phones, instantaneously. It is very hard, very tempting. And I would say part of the reason that people do shy away from this topic is shame and guilt. And we need to just put something out there. Every one of us is a fellow struggler when it comes to the area of sexuality. And this is about sex. And that can make us uncomfortable. That can make us shy away from having this be something we come around as a church to address. Because we tiptoe around and some of us feel a lot of shame. And we are all equal at the foot of the cross mm -hmm. when it comes to this. We need to help one another, not to pretend we're not fellow strugglers, to help each other in our struggle, to acknowledge it's very, very difficult nowadays. We're back to the days of Baal worship. It was very tempting for the people in biblical times. They had their orgies right out there in the high places, the high places where people were went and, and did sexual acts that were condoned in their pagan religion, part of their religious practices. You can go in Israel today and see where these places were. 
passersby could see it. You could go to a temple and an act of worship would be to per have sex with a temple prostitute, both male and female. So it was a very decrepit society back then, and we are back to that spirit today. Mm. Our modern technology is doing it to us. And so our poor boys, I have three sons, do not let your sons have computers in their bedroom. This is what they're doing. I'm sorry, they're boys. <laughs> it just is, okay? We have one computer in our kitchen, front and center. Even so, my kids managed to sneak onto it. So one day, I thought they had been on some, site, some sites. I decided to pull down the history and watch what my own sons had actually seen. And they all pointed the finger. Oh, he did it. It wasn't me. He did it. He did it. One of the things my, one of my sons watched, I, I naively thought that they would have to like put a credit card or pay to see a movie at that time. I didn't know. I thought it would be like still pictures, like a Playboy magazine come to find. No, it was these movies. I was horrified. One of the things they had visited was a Japanese school teacher being raped by all of her students. The boys held her down, older teens, and raped her one by one. And I sat there and looked at this, and I thought, one of my sons took this into his psyche today. What did that do to him? What is this doing on a regular basis to guys? It's altering the way they're perceiving girls. It's desensitizing them. And so we have a big task. We have a big problem on our hands because of this issue. And so how did we get here in our country? How, how is this the case that Many of our own girls have been trafficked, not by pimps out on the street, but by boys they go to high school with. By their fellow students, one of our girls, 15, virgin, never had a boyfriend. The boy she thought was her new boyfriend gave her a date rape drug at a birthday party. He and another boy took her to another location, violated her, and then sold her, literally sold her to a trafficker. Hmm. How is this the case in our own country? You remember the case a few years ago in Richmond at the dance that was on national news of the girl at her dance. Her boyfriend took her out, and again, a whole ring, about 30 guys, stood around and watched. They didn't all participate, but they all watched as this girl was sexually violated almost to the point of death. How is that the case? And the very disturbing thing about that story, the thing that kept being asked on the news for a whole week around the country, how did this happen? How are we here? Because these weren't gang member boys, remember? They were guys on the baseball team. They were good students who were college bound. And how is that possible at a Bay Area high school? Again, we have to go back to the porn thing. Our guys are becoming desensitized. And their, their view toward females is being altered by this steady diet. So we as a church have to speak to this issue. Mm -hmm. We have the place to speak to it. The, the, the abolitionist movement in this country that prompted, that preempted the Civil War was born in the churches in New England. Wilberforce was a Christian. And so now... It's only fitting that the church is leading the way yeah. in the fight against yeah. modern-day slavery today. Yeah. So we're kind of wrecked by what you've said so far. Yes. I don't hear anybody 
Uh, everybody wants to leave, actually, right now. Yeah. So tell us, give us some hope here. What, okay. what, what can we do and what are you doing? Yes. And I, I opened, I looked at my Bible today. There was a quote from a guy in Alaska named Jim Bruckner, who's a great covenant pastor and theologian. And um, I, I loved this and I thought it would be really good for today. About hope. Suffering is the seedbed of hope. We should hope with ferocity. Hope with ferocity. I love We're that. going to have to because this yes. is getting This is a ferocious topic. It yeah. is too big for us. We hear numbers like that. It's demobilizing. It's scary. It's it's devastating. And again, we want to turn away. So suffering is the seedbed of hope. We should hope with ferocity. We need to engage in this fight on behalf of our kids. And I have to ask you not to turn away from it. And if you do feel a little sick, and if you go home and you can't sleep for a few nights, I'm sorry, but that's my job to disrupt you that way. Because this is real, and this is happening to children in our own country all around us. We have kids right from this area that we are taking care of. In the past two years, we've taken care of 27 of these girls. Currently, we have 12 of them. The numbers are always changing. Some are now in college. So here's the hope. When people come up to see and see our girls, they can't believe it. Where are they? Our girls are in a boarding school. Four hours north of the Bay Area. We don't disclose the location. We treat it like a battered women's shelter. And again, this is just very brief. I can come back. We want, we and Edited for Children want to establish friendships with churches over the long haul. And partner, I'm close by here. This is what I do. I'll come. We can have a potluck um, and talk more and share more about this. Because once we learn about this, it demands a response. And these kids need our help. We need to feed them. We need to clothe them. So everything happens for them on site at our school. And it is a school only for girls who have been sexually trafficked. Only for girls who have been wounded in this way. And our focus is on the American girls. Ironically, in this country, there are many, many services for international trafficking victims because that's how we've been framing it. We have been framing this as girls brought in from the Soviet Union, you know, satellite countries with promises of being a nanny, girls being trafficked across the border from Mexico. They're primarily victimizing our own kids, born and raised right here. They, they realize these are smart people that we're up against. They realize, hey, why go to the trouble of, of shipping them in and shipping containers and smuggling them across the borders? So we can just go fish in our own pond right down at the local mall. Plenty of girls right here. And so that's what's happening. So the FBI gives us these girls, social workers. We have a judge in Las Vegas who's given us five girls. Um, we rehabilitate them. We test them when they come to us and see where they are academically. Uh, many of them have missed, as you can imagine, a long time of schooling. They're very delayed. So we have a girl now who's going to nursing school this next year. We have two girls who are already in college. One of our girls is going with one of our staff members this summer, leaving next week for a mission trip to Cambodia because she wants to give back. Cambodia, again, number one country in the world for trafficking of children. She wants to go help some of those children. She wants to go put her arms around them and say, I've been there, and there's hope, and God can restore. So when people come up to our program and see our girls, they can't believe it. And they say things like, these just seem like the girls from our church youth group. And I say, well, they are. Okay? I tell churches when I go, 
because this is the second largest criminal industry in this country and growing, we will all know people this has happened to. I said this at a church last year that did a beautiful brunch to support New Day. Their girls' praise team put on a drama and a dance. One of the girls who danced that very day where I spoke about this, just like I'm doing today, was taken from that youth group. It can't become that close to home. That church is now galvanized into action. This is their number one issue. I was just at a trafficking conference in Oakland that the DA's office put on internationally for, for three days, and, and a representative of that church was tabling right next to me. They've started a group to address this issue. Mm-hmm. So it will come that close to home. I mentioned I was a school teacher prior to doing this job. I got a call from one of my moms couple months ago, said, Ms. Wilson, you're not going to believe what's happened to our, to our girl. So she is still sitting in juvenile hall right now in Oakland, one of my own babies that I taught school every, every day for two years, that close to home. So this is an issue that demands a response. But the great news is the human spirit is very resilient. I love stories of people who've survived amazing things like the Cambodian Holocaust, um, World War II Holocaust. Suffering is a seabed of hope and can bring out great things, the best things, and the worst things in the human spirit. And if you meet our girls, you will be amazed. Last Sunday at Lake Merced in San Francisco, we had a 5K marathon for them. A high school student dreamed up this program. Uh, girls on track. It was wonderful. The chief of police of San Francisco was there, chief of police of Oakland, the head of the fire department. They were all there. The DA's office was there. And guess what? Our girls said, we want to come when they heard about it. And we thought, well, girls, this is a public event. There's going to be media there. You know what? They said, no, people are running for us. We want to run for ourselves. So we said, okay, this is good news. There were 33 professional runners in that race. Two of our girls placed in the top 20 time for the run. So we're empowering them. Our girls are my heroes. We don't force them to testify. It's it's very wrenching, and they get re-victimized in the courtroom again. And the guys who are doing this, the traffickers, rely on the fact that these children are so terrorized and demoralized that they will not testify against them in court. It's part of what's keeping it on. But if our girls want to, we shepherd them through the process. One of our girls, I helped drive her up to our program. She was our second child. She bawled the whole way in the car. She said, you won't be able to keep me safe. You won't be able to keep me safe. She was 13 when they first took her. Kidnapped twice at gunpoint, two blocks away from where I taught in Oakland. Scared to death we wouldn't be able to keep her safe. After being with us for almost a year, this girl had a backbone. She was strong. She had her sense of self back. She said, I want to nail him. I want to get this guy. We said, are you sure? You sure you want to go through this? She said, yes, I can. She survived three days of cross-examination by the defense attorney. And if I ever wanted to throttle a guy, it was this man, because he re-victimized her again in court, tried to make it look like it was her fault. Our girl sat up straight as a ramrod and was able to get through that and landed a 25-to-life conviction against this guy. And the DA's office said, 
All across the country, these perpetrators paid attention to what happened in Oakland, California. So we're, we're empowering these girls, giving them back not only their childhoods, but their dignity, their strength, and their sense of self. Yeah. I would love to keep going mm-hmm. on this, but we're going to have to stop. Have me come back. Right about now. We'd love to have you come back. There's information out on the table out there, and you're going to stay around for a little bit yes. if anybody wants to talk to you. Um, thank you, and I want to pray for you and for your work at New Day for Children. Mm-hmm. And... Um, your last word to us, what should we do walking out of here? What should we be thinking about? Okay, yes. We don't respond to this in a spirit of fear, okay? Think of the world the gospel went forth in. There was a slave market on every corner. The promises of God were as true for all those people. More people have lived in slavery or serfdom on this planet throughout human history than have lived free. Think about it that way. This is nothing new to God. It is new to us in our own country, in our own backyard. But it's nothing new to God. So he does not want us to respond by having a faith crisis, by going into denial, by having a spirit of fear and fortressing ourselves off from the world. He wants us to be the light. Okay? A dark room. What do we do? We fight the darkness by light. One little candle lit in a dark room pushes away the darkness. So we don't combat this by focusing on the darkness. This is a very dark topic, and I'm sorry it is. What's happening to our children is very dark. It's the worst. Short of killing a person, what worse can you do than to victimize an innocent child in this way? But we don't combat it by focusing on the darkness and being debilitated by it, by the scope, by the numbers. We rescue one child at a time. We feed and clothe and educate one child at a time. We light a candle. We light another candle. We get in this together. We engage in the fight. We do good deeds. We are the light. So focus on God, the light. Let his light shine through you. Don't focus on the darkness. And that's how we can engage in this battle. Thank you. Thank you. Mm You know, in Acts chapter, in Acts chapter 16, we don't have time to look at it today, but go look at Acts chapter 16. There's an, issue, there's an instance of trafficking mm-hmm. of, a, of a young girl who's called a slave girl, and those who own her make money off of her. Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas in Philippi intervene, and as a result of their intervention to save her, to rescue her, they're so upset because they're losing their source of, of, of money that they throw Paul and Silas in prison. And I'm wondering, would I be willing to intervene if it meant that I had to pay a price? W- w- would you? It isn't just my own three children that I'm responsible for. All of these children, some of them, of course, are fatherless and are without any support or any protection. What, do you, what are you going to do about that? So let's, uh, let's close in prayer. and Let's remember New Day for Children and, and other ministries that are working hard on the front lines to fight this, and especially let's remember the brave girls. Lord, I want to thank you for Kathy and uh, her teammates who are working hard, who, whose own hearts have been broken in the process, and yet whose own hearts are being strengthened because they're doing something. They're doing your work, God. They're, they're standing in your place, and they're caring for those who are, who are fatherless, for those who are without protection, for those who are defenseless, for those who have been abused and violated in ways that just tears us apart to hear about. 
And we don't want to think about this. We think first of our, of our own children and how we, we want to keep them safe. And we should keep them safe. But we have a neighborhood, we have a community, we have, we have, um, we have, we have kids who are kind of out there just on their own. And, and we do live in a world, Lord, that, that creates opportunities for evil people. And uh, we need to do something about that, Lord. And I thank you for those who are. And again, I thank you for Kathy and friends who are working hard um, with these girls and providing a safe place. How beautiful is that? May you expand the capacity of this ministry and make it available to everyone who can be rescued. We pray for that. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.